At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, what the Democrats have done wrong and what they've done right. Not just last week, but in the last century. Michael Kazin will explain. His new book is What It Took to Win. We'll speak with him later in the hour. But first, Jamie Raskin, member of the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, will talk about the committee's work and its future. That's coming up in a minute. Jamie Raskin, the member of Congress from Maryland, is best known as manager of Donald Trump's impeachment trial after January 6th. He also taught constitutional law for 25 years at American University Law School. Now he's a member of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. His new book is Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy. It was a number one bestseller. It describes his fight to uphold the Constitution during the Trump administration and the loss of his son, Tommy, to suicide on December 31st, 2020, six days before the attack on the Capitol. Last week, he spoke with Katrina Vanden Heuvel and John Nichols at a Nation event. Today, we have highlights of that conversation. First, he was asked about the future of the January 6th committee. What will become of the committee and its work if Republicans take control of the House after the midterms, which seems likely? You know, the House of Representatives, unlike the Senate, is a body that ends every two years because the whole body is elected all over again. Whereas, you know, the Senate, because the overlapping six year terms just keeps going, it's a continuing body, and we're not. So I think that the bipartisan select committee on January 6th feels very much the urgency of what we're doing. Um, because if the House, uh, God forbid, were to fall into wrong hands, um, it would almost certainly just be terminated um, because they're not interested in it. Or I, I, I take it that the debate in the Republican caucus is, do you just end it? Or do you do what they've tried to do um, in terms of like the Mueller investigation, which is you turn the investigation on the investigators, which is what like Newt Gingrich has been saying that those of us on the committee are going to be the targets of the investigation, um, which is, you know, obviously a fascistic tactic. And what will the committee do before that? We're going to have hearings, which I think will be explosive when people see this was not some kind of uh, rally that got a little bit out of hand when they see that it was not, um, you know, Trump's mob greeting our officers with flowers and hugs and kisses, as he said. Um, and we'll do a report and we're going to do a report in a really powerful, cogent, compelling way. Uh, I hope with a mixture of text and video to explain to people uh, what happened. I mean, maybe we'll even transform 
the concept of what a report is um, in our committee so that people will be able to understand it at a whole lot of different levels. Um, but th this was an attack on our government. And uh, you, know, you guys have probably heard me talk before about the three rings of sedition, a mob riot surrounding a violent insurrection conducted by domestic violent extremist groups, white nationalist racist groups, like the Proud Boys who Trump told to stand back and stand by, like uh, the Oath Keepers who've been charged with um, seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to overthrow the government, like the militia groups, the QAnon networks, uh, the Three Percenters, the Unification Church and so on. A lot of political, religious, authoritarian cults were in there. And then that was surrounding a coup, an attempt by Trump and his political entourage to overthrow Biden's uh, 306 vote uh, majority in the Electoral College, um, to lower it below 270, and at that point to kick the whole contest into the House of Representatives for a so-called contingent election under the 12th Amendment. And the reason for that, if you're asking why would Trump want the House of Representatives under Speaker Pelosi and the Democrats to decide, it's because um, the 12th Amendment provides that we're not voting one member, one vote, we're voting one state, one vote. And they had 27 state delegations after the 2020 elections. We have 22, Pennsylvania, nine to nine is split right down the middle. So even had they lost um, through the defection of that large representative from Wyoming, Liz Cheney, uh, they still would have had 26 votes to, um, if they could have just convinced Pence to do this, to reject those electors coming in from Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, they could have declared Trump the president. He would have invoked the Insurrection Act, declared something like martial law, finally brought in the National Guard to put down the insurrectionary chaos he'd unleashed against us, declare himself a hero and president for the next four years. And then we would have moved into a very different kind of government. And that's what they had planned for us. In the impeachment trial for Trump's crimes on January 6th, what was the strategy there? Well, um, you know, I, we had the most remarkable team of managers and former prosecutors, public defenders, people who really knew what they were doing. And, you know, my main role was to say, this is not a collection of speeches. Throw away all the speeches. We're just telling a story from beginning to middle to end. And when we have to address legal stuff, we'll address it. We'll punch back. Will explain uh, why the Constitution is totally on our side. And of course, the Trump's lawyers ended up being so pitiful that we didn't even have to do that much of that. Um, but we wanted to tell a story that really stuck in their minds. And we, we did get seven of the Republicans to join us from New England, the Mid-Atlantic, the South, the Midwest, the West, Alaska, you know, from all over the country. That's 14% of the Republican caucus. Um, and it's just, uh, it's sad to me that uh, McConnell, you know, made that speech where he basically said we had proven our case. He said he had no doubt that actually, factually, morally, uh, Donald Trump was responsible. He basically said we had proven our case, but they didn't have jurisdiction uh, to exercise over the trial because Trump had left office, which was a legal claim that had been rejected on the first day of the trial by the Senate in a 54 to 46 vote and a legal claim that's been rejected basically since the beginning of the Republic. It's been made repeatedly and it's always rejected. Don't get me started on that. Um, but the, you know, that's like in a criminal prosecution if somebody says, you can't use that gun against me, 
because it was illegally seized and the court finds, no, it wasn't illegally seized. At that point, you have to drop it. You move to the facts of the trial. And if you go back to that later, that is what we call jury nullification. That's the jury stepping outside of its role as the decider of fact and deciding on some other basis. And that's essentially what McConnell did. And I think it's because he did not have enough Republicans to go along with him. If he'd had a majority of the Republicans, if he had 26 of them, then I think he would have done it because he would have been um, he would have been assured of his own continuity in office. But of course, he was afraid that Trump would organize an overthrow of his leadership. Then Jamie Raskin was asked about the evidence that the committee has gathered in its recent investigation. I mean, one of the most damning pieces of evidence, uh, to my mind, uh, both for this process, but also when we were in the impeachment trial, was that after Trump saw what was going on, after the violence overrode the Capitol, you know, dozens and dozens of officers getting smashed in the face and sprayed with chemical agents and beat up after they they broke our windows, stormed our doors, shut down uh, the counting of electoral college votes for the first time in American history, then chanted to hang Mike Pence and driving him out of the building, Trump tweets out, you know, not, you know, leave my vice president alone, but he tweets out, um, Mike Pence did not have the courage to do what needed to be done or, you know, something to that effect. Um, and, um, you know, there, there's a lot of that. It's similar, you know, to what I view now as a dress rehearsal for January 6th, which was the attack on the Michigan State Capitol, which then turned into a plot to kidnap and assassinate um, the, uh, the, the governor. Um, and uh, again, when she was, you know, basically being hounded and chased and threatened with her life, Trump is still um, inciting the mob against her. Uh, talking about you know how you know uh, you know she's she's been violating everybody's rights and so on. So uh, Gretchen Whitmer, I'm sure, could recognize a lot of what happened to Mike Pence on that day. But why has it been so hard to nail Trump? You know, most corporate CEOs would understand, uh, and most mob bosses would understand what Trump does. Um, you know, everything is a wink and a nod. Everything is done through other people. Uh, he surrounds himself with loyal sycophants who uh, know what he wants to accomplish. Nothing is ever written down. If it is, it's ripped up into tiny little pieces of paper. Um, and, um, you know, he also travels with an army of lawyers, you know, ever since he was a kid with, with daddy's money. So I know it's maddening the people. And, uh, you know, he, he really is, the poster boy for white male privilege in America. I mean, you know, if you ever doubt that white male privilege exists, look at the career of Donald Trump. Um, but having said all that, you know, I'm with Dr. King. I think, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice and he will get his comeuppance in the end. And, you know, in terms of the January 6th Select Committee, I mean, our goal, um, our primary goal is not individual accountability. Um, our goal is collective and public accountability, um, and we need to make the changes that we need to strengthen our democratic institutions with uh, voting rights through the electoral college system. As long as we're going to have it, we need to protect the, the popular voice in it. There are a lot of things that we need to do, um, and those are the kind of changes that the January 6th committee is focused on. Next, he was asked, what is to be done with our flawed system of elections? And what about ranked choice voting? 
Well, um, I am the sponsor of the ranked choice voting bill in uh, in Congress with my my buddy Don Byer from Virginia, and um, you know Donald Trump's election within the Republican Party is actually a pretty good demonstration of why we need ranked choice voting. He never really went above, I think it was thirty three or thirty five percent. You know, a majority of the Republicans, I think, you know, were pretty repulsed by what he was having to offer, but he just sort of went after each opponent one by one. And then he was kind of like the last guy standing. Um, Ranked choice voting is all about making sure that you actually have majority support. Um, And it reduces negative campaigning. Um, And um, so I'm all for that. You know, I, I, I think, you know, as I was saying at the beginning, we gotta get back on the growth road of democracy. And that means uh, you know, we need statehood for people in Washington, D.C. That's 713,000 disenfranchised Americans who've been, you know, kicked around for too long who deserve their statehood. Three and a half million people in Puerto Rico um, who deserve their statehood. It means we need real voting rights protection for everybody because the voter suppression statutes are now targeting early voting, weekend voting, mail in balloting, absentee balloting, you know, crazy laws like the one in Georgia, which say it's a crime to give somebody a bag of potato chips while they're waiting in a six hour line to vote, you know. Um, So um, we've got to get that done. But you see the kind of matrix of GOP democracy suppression we're in. We can't pass that through the Senate because of the filibuster. So the filibuster protects the voter suppression statutes, which protect GOP majorities in the legislatures, which protect their gerrymandering of our districts. So you've got basically blue states that continue to have Republican legislatures like you know Pennsylvania, I think Wisconsin, you tell me, John, yeah. I it think is. they still yeah. do. I mean, I mean, it's just an outrageous situation, but the gerrymandering is self-perpetuating from decade to decade. And if all you care about is power and you literally have no agenda. I mean, the the GOP convention in 2020 came back with no platform for the first time in the history of modern political parties. If you have literally no agenda, then your your agenda is whatever Donald Trump says it is and voter suppression and just hanging on to power. And that's what we're up against. You know, Madeleine Albright says in her book, which is really pretty good, um, fascism should not be understood as having a specific ideological content. Fascism should be understood as a strategy for taking and then holding power. And that's an illuminating way of thinking about what we're up against today. Finally, Jamie Raskin was asked about the Constitution and the deep flaws in its construction, especially the compromises with slavery. I mean, first of all, there were differences among the founders. Um, Tom Paine was an abolitionist. Benjamin Franklin was an abolitionist. And, you know, Tom Paine, he was extraordinary. I mean, he basically, I mean, even the most radical people opposing the British tyranny still were defining themselves as British men and still were asking for the rights of British men under the Magna Carta. And when Tom Paine wrote uh, Common Sense, he basically was calling for independence and he was calling for a Republican form of government and saying, we don't need the the kings and we don't need the unification of church and state and we don't need any of that stuff um and like that's just the absolute radicalism of the you know the revolutionary spirit 
uh, of Tom Paine. And you know, what do you do with those who made these these fateful, um, just humiliating compromises with slavery, like Thomas Jefferson? I mean, you know, you take them for what they're worth. I mean, Jefferson should be celebrated for the language that he put in the Declaration about all men being created equal um, and the inalienable rights of people and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and the consent of the governed, even though he didn't live up to it, uh, even though he was a hypocrite. Um, okay, um, he, he established those concepts that later generations of radical Democrats who had greater, much greater vision than Jefferson were able to use to expand the application of the constitution. Um, and so, you know, I think we can take them for what they're worth. But I mean, I view the abolitionists, Frederick Douglass, um, you know, Wendell Phillips, the people who fought for abolition and then fought uh, to win the civil war and the reconstruction also as founders of our constitution, as framers of the reconstruction constitution, because they are, you know, they were so critical to the changes that we made. If you look at the amendments that we've had since the Bill of Rights, there's 17 of them. The vast majority have been about expanding democracy, voting rights, um, and the application of constitutional principles to more and more people. So the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery, 14th Amendment equal production due process, 15th Amendment bans race discrimination and voting, 17th Amendment shifts the mode of election of U.S. senators from the legislatures to the people. The 19th Amendment gives us women's suffrage. 23rd Amendment says people in D.C. can participate in presidential elections. 24th Amendment bans poll taxes. 26th Amendment lowers the voting age to 18. Like that is the real trajectory of our development as a union. That's what the Trumpists hate. That's what they can't handle. I mean, they, they still want to go back to the state legislatures picking U.S. senators, what the populists and the progressives called corporation senators, because big corporations, oil companies uh, would come in standard oil and just buy senators by spreading money around the, the legislatures. Um, so the, the, that's the momentum that we've got to keep going against uh, the racism, the white supremacy, the corporate rule that they've got in mind for us. Jamie Raskin, speaking at a nation event last week, his number one bestseller is called Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy. We look forward to seeing him soon in primetime TV coverage of the public hearings of the January 6th committee starting in April. What the Democrats have done wrong and what they've done right in American history. For that, we turn to Michael Kazin. He teaches history at Georgetown. He edited Dissent Magazine for 10 years. He's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, and the Nation. He's also written six books. The new one is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. Last time we talked here, it was about democratic socialism in America. Michael Kazin, welcome back. Good to be here, John. Well, today we're not going to talk about politics for the last week. We're going to talk about politics for the last century. If you had to describe Democrats before FDR in a single sentence, what would you say? I would say they believed in egalitarian whiteness, that 
they were representing and tried to represent uh, the interests of majority of ordinary white men. And they did so successfully at some times. But clearly they were, like my friend Mike Tomaski has said in a recent book, a terrible party for everybody else for the most part, for Native Americans, um, for Black people, um, and for many women as well, even though, of course, a lot of women supported their men in the Democratic Party as well. But um, really the Democratic Party that we think of as a modern, more progressive party, more liberal party, is a party that really begins to form uh, in a really serious way in the 1930s. And where does your personal history with the Democrats begin? Well, I I seem to remember I used to talk to my uh, third grade um, <laughs> friends about why Adlai Stevenson uh, was a good candidate in 1956. But I do remember very well that I handed out leaflets for John Kennedy in 1960 on the streets of my hometown, Englewood, New Jersey, which is... Uh, uh, just a short bus ride from the George Washington Bridge uh, uh, next to New York City. Uh, and my parents were devout liberal Democrats, like lots of uh, Jews from New York in that area were. And so many ways, uh, even though I'm a leftist and uh, a Democratic Socialist, I've also been a capital D Democrat for most of my life. Have you always supported the Democratic candidate for president? Uh, not in 1968, when I was in a group uh, you know well called Students for Democratic Society uh, when I was in college. And then uh, the Vietnam War turned me against the Democrats. Of course, the Vietnam War was a war being prosecuted by Democrats, Lyndon Johnson and the Democratic candidate, the 68 Hubert Humphrey. So I joined a march uh, in Boston calling for uh, people to vote uh, in the streets, vote with your feet, not to vote, in other words, uh, but to demonstrate instead. In 19, uh, uh, 1980, excuse me, um, even though I certainly you know, preferred Jimmy Carter to a degree to Ronald Reagan in that election, uh, I was so fed up with Jimmy Carter's lousy presidency, his helping to ignite a new Cold War with the Soviet Union, uh, that I voted for a candidate most people probably never heard of uh, named Barry Commoner, a uh, left-wing environmentalist uh, who ran as a candidate for a new party called the Citizens Party, who got all of, two, all of a quarter of a million votes. Our modern political history, as you say, begins really in 1936 with FDR's huge re-election victory that year. You call it the most complete victory in the history of partisan presidential elections. How did he do it? He did it by putting together a coalition, uh, a majority coalition, which is how Democrats uh, become a majority party. They put together for the first time, both white people and black people, because 1936, the first presidential election where a majority of black voters who were able to vote in the South, of course, most could not. For the first time, a majority of black voters vote for the Democratic candidate instead of the Republican candidate. And they've done so in every election since. Also, the uh, union movement was surging in 1936. Uh, unions were organized in, in the auto uh, plants and steel mills and elsewhere. And most of the unions that were being formed did support FDR uh, and, and Democrats across the board. Uh, and that helped a lot, too. Also, a lot of people who just out of a job, who thought the Republican Party was the party that caused the Great Depression, voted for Democrats as well. Uh, and this was true of rural voters as well as uh, urban voters. So really, it was a really real cross-section of, uh, of Americans. And as a result, the Democrats had massive majorities in both houses of Congress and won every state except for Maine uh, and Vermont. And the next big transformative moment came in 1964, LBJ versus Goldwater. LBJ's victory then, it's still worth recalling. LBJ got 61.1%. That's actually more than Reagan got in 1980. His victory margin was 16 million votes. 
The new Senate for LBJ had 68 Democrats, more than two-thirds. So what can you do with a landslide of that proportion? You can pass Medicare. You can pass the war on poverty. And you can pass the Voting Rights Act, the late lamented Voting Rights Act. This was a huge transformative moment for American uh, history, but in 1966, in the midterms, uh, it was a disaster for the for the Democrats and for LBJ. What went wrong? What happened to the massive majority, supermajority that Johnson had created? A couple things. First of all, the Vietnam War uh, was becoming unpopular. It wasn't yet unpopular among the majority, but it was becoming unpopular, including among a lot of liberal Democrats who didn't vote for Republicans, but some of them sat out the election. Also, the white backlash, the backlash against the Civil Rights Movement, against the Civil Rights Act. Uh, George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, uh, was becoming more popular among uh, a lot of white working class Democrats, not just in the South, but in the North as well. And the war on poverty was seen as, by a lot of Americans, as giving money to poor people who weren't working. One of the lessons that uh, Lyndon Johnson failed to learn from uh, his mentor, Franklin D. Roosevelt, was that the main programs that Roosevelt passed uh, and signed and Democrats uh, enacted under, in the New Deal were programs that were perceived as helping uh, the large majority of Americans. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in the 1960s, the main programs that most people heard about that the Great Society enacted, with the exception of Medicare, were programs that were perceived as helping only a minority of Americans. And of course, the anti-poverty program, though it helped all poor Americans to a degree, uh, was perceived, again, as helping mostly mostly African-Americans. So um, white voters who felt that, you know, this was supposed to be their party and supposed to be their government, why was it helping people who were not like them? And, and that, unfortunately, uh, helped to produce a backlash, and that backlash was one of the things which helped to whittle down the Democratic majorities uh, in Congress in 1966, and the end elected Richard Nixon president in 1968. So 1968, historic event when the incumbent Democrat was forced to withdraw from his own reelection campaign by anti-war activists, including you, including me. So... The story of 1968 in the, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago is well known. I knew nothing about the Democratic platform of 1968 until I read your book. Yeah, what's astonishing uh, is that the Democratic platform of 68 was more uh, left-wing, uh, more of a sort of uh, social democratic platform uh, than than the Democratic platform had been ever before, including in 1936 when Franklin Roosevelt won this uh, landslide re-election, including in 64 when Lyndon Johnson won this huge landslide. It included, you know, uh, national health insurance for all, uh, guaranteed housing, guaranteed job for everybody who needed one. But it was completely overshadowed by the Vietnam War, by the split in the party over the war. Uh, Hubert Humphrey didn't even mention it in his, in his acceptance speech. Uh, he was so concerned to try to knit the party together somehow, uh, which, of course, he failed to do. You know, it's one of the lost opportunities. The Vietnam War really... Uh, ended the Democratic Party's dominance in, in American uh, politics. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965, as you say, caused this white backlash, especially turning the white South Republican. The last Democrat to carry the South was Jimmy Carter in 1976. And now, now there's a white man's party. A majority of whites have voted Republican for the last 50 years. Uh, and then there's the party of everybody else, the Democrats. What can you tell us about this? 
The Republicans are the white Christian party. Now, you know, they picked up gains among Latinx people in the last election. Some votes among, picked up some votes among African-Americans and Asian-Americans, but basically it's overwhelmingly a party of white Christians, especially away from both coasts. But, you know, if you can unite that group, which is still a majority of the population, you can do pretty well, especially with the way the Senate is organized. Uh, And so many predominantly white states, of course, have the same number of senators as uh, states like California and New York. Same time, the Democrats are a broader coalition uh, racially uh, in terms of class as well and education, but uh, that makes it difficult, I think, for Democrats to agree uh, on what they stand for and to agree on one leader who they all uh, get behind. Uh, it's also uh, been a problem. Uh, I think the Democrats do best when they promote uh, universal programs, when they devote programs that uh, the large majority of Americans can benefit from. So security, Medicare, uh, national health insurance, uh, a minimum wage, and um, aid education. Uh, some of the programs in the Build Back Better bill, omnibus bill, which of course is not is not going to pass because of two senators, uh, Democratic senators, not willing to do away with the filibuster for this bill. But in the end, you know, to become a majoritarian party, which of course the Democrats always want to be, that's how you win elections on an ongoing way, I think you have to advance uh, majoritarian programs. It doesn't mean you can't talk about other programs as well. Uh, you have to talk about racial justice. You have to talk about gender justice. But the programs that you put out front, I think, and that you try to get people, uh, especially in this, the swing voters in the middle of the electorate, aren't sure any given election which party they're going to vote for, I think those are the programs, the, the, the universal programs that will win them over. And that is, unfortunately, a two-party system, how power is won. And the Democrats' next big chance to restore an FDR 1936-type strategy came with the financial meltdown of, nine, of 2007 and eight, which led to the electing of Obama and another Democratic sweep of Congress. Democrats gained eight Senate seats. There were two independents, so they had 59 seats in the Senate. We said... It's 1936 all over again. It's 1964 all over again. Obama can be the new FDR. Uh, And then he put all his capital into the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Was that a mistake? You know, I'm not sure. Uh, I go back and forth on that. He wanted to do one big thing. And uh, uh, the ACA, at least as originally drawn up, was one big thing. And of course, it's proved to be popular. It's still on the books. And it's a you know, it's a step towards uh, what you and I would like, which is, you know, national health insurance, Medicare for all in one form or another. And I think uh, American social policy doesn't usually operate with one huge, massive, you know, reform. Um, even Social Security didn't cover a lot of people when it was first passed in the mid-1930s. Right. And so I think it was a good idea to pass uh, um, Obamacare. Part of the problem, though, was that there was no big movement behind it, uh, as there was for example, behind Social Security. Uh, a lot of people, even more Democrats, wanted some sort of help for people who were older. There were all kinds of movements to do that before Social Security passed. Similarly, the Wagner Act, National Labor Relations Act in, in, in 1935, uh, giving the government you know, power over running union elections and uh, uh, punishing employers for unfair labor practices. There was a huge union movement that was surging, uh, which, which made that possible. That wasn't true for Obamacare. That's one of the reasons I think why it was difficult to pass, because there wasn't a real pressure 
on a lot of people, even Democrats in many places to pass it. Uh, and also I think uh, Obama lost a chance to be um, the kind of left-wing populist that, uh, that FDR was in many ways. Uh, you know, he believed, he believed in his famous uh, speech in the 2004 Democratic Convention in Boston, uh, where he introduced himself to most Americans, talked about there's no red America, no blue America. He, was, he believed in his heart, I think, in compromise, in bipartisanship, in, in bringing Americans together across these lines. And, you know, the Republicans weren't buying it. <laughs> and uh, it took him a long time to realize that. By the time he realized it, it, the Democrats had lost their majorities. One of the most striking changes in the party system over the last century is the way women have ended up as Democrats and men have ended up as Republicans. I think that it, it's hard to remember the last time a Democratic candidate won a majority of male voters, certainly not in the last 50 years. There's this sort of gendering of our politics, whereas the politics of caring is feminine and the politics of personal responsibility is is masculine. So the Democrats rely on turning out women. Is this our future? I mean, as long as there is a gender split uh, culturally uh, in our country. Uh, some would argue biologically, you know, between people who have children and people who don't. Issues like abortion are going to be big issues. Uh, women, of course, are more pro-choice uh, than they are pro-life. Uh, men are more 50-50, depending on the polls. Uh, women are active in both the pro-life and pro-choice movements. But I think that issue does tend to, to help Democrats as well. So, you know, as long as those, as quote, women's issues uh, are seen as issues that Democrats more, care more about, uh, I think the gender split will exist. But it really didn't begin to happen until the 1960s. Before then, actually, women voted more Republican than men did because they were more conservative uh, and there were uh, many fewer of them were in labor unions. Uh, and, that, and most people in labor unions voted Democratic at the time. So you end your book in Las Vegas on election night in 2018 at Caesars Palace Hotel. Wonderful finale. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, actually, uh, full disclosure, my son... Danny was the uh, campaign manager for the Democrat running for the Senate. Uh, Jackie Rosen was elected in 2018. So I, I, I don't usually hang out at Caesar's Palace, though. You know, <laughs> the um, center of the Democratic Party uh, in Las Vegas, and really the engine of the Democratic Party in the state, is, is a culinary workers local, which is mostly in, in Las Vegas and Reno, the big you know, casino and entertainment uh, tourist centers uh, in Nevada. And, and they are quite a remarkable union. Uh, they... First of all, I have, you know, something like 50,000 members. Uh, they represent almost all the workers in the major casinos and hotels in Las Vegas, and most of them in Reno as well. They have a great health care plan. Uh, they have plans to teach you know, people English. A lot, of, a lot of the workers are immigrants uh, from lots of other countries, though majority are Latinx uh, from one country or another, Latin America. Uh, but they also may have managed to work out this uh, quite <laughs> amazing plank in their provision, I should say, in their contracts with the major hotels in Las Vegas, where they get paid leave for a couple of weeks during election campaigns to go canvas for candidates. Uh, that's quite remarkable. I don't know any of the union in America that has that provision in their, in their contract. Maybe others do. I just don't know of it. And of course, that means that they are really uh, essential to Democrats winning in Nevada. And Nevada is a swing state. It's a purple state. Uh, Democrats have been winning it in the last few elections, but Republicans won it for a long time under Nixon and Reagan. They won it pretty easily. Um, and so Harry Reid, the late uh, majority leader, former majority leader of, uh, of the Democrats, sort of cobbled together this connection between the Democrats and the culinary workers in Nevada about 20 years ago. 
And uh, it's held up until now. And that's the kind of thing I think Democrats need more of. They need, first of all, unions have to grow and, and uh, to help working people generally and also to help Democrats because uh, unions tend to uh, support Democrats and tend, Democrats tend to support union demands, um, especially when unions are strong, as they are in, in Las Vegas and Nevada generally, but also because that connection to the working class population, organized working class population, is really essential to rebuild, I think, a majority coalition. Because most Americans, after all, are working class. They did not graduate from college. Uh, they have jobs, earning wages, and that should be the future of the Democratic Party. Michael Kazin, his new book is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. Michael, thanks for talking with us today. This was great. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.